everyone, wherever you are listening from today. If this is your first time joining us, we talk to a different person from the arts and entertainment industry to go through why they got into it. If you like what you hear or who you hear, then please give us a like and subscribe. Today, we welcome another guest to the podcast from the inner depths of Europe. He is the CEO of one of Europe's elite festivals, the Montreux Jazz Festival. It started small in 1967, but grew to be a festival that attracts nearly 250,000 spectators every year. The CEO, born in Vevey, was one of those that went from looking up to the festival and wanting to be a part of it, to then finally working at it, and then to where he is today. His passion and love for this festival is palpable, and he has seen it all grow and sprout from a seed to the oak tree that it is today, firm and sturdy in its roots as one of the greats to visit. Please welcome to the podcast, Mathieu Chaton. How are you and where are you today? Hello, thank you for having me today. Uh, I'm in Montreux. I'm in our office, which is close to the lake with the mountain in front of us with a lot of snow. It's cold today. It's about zero degrees, but um, it's sunny and beautiful weather for December. Awesome. Love it. We've interviewed a few people from festivals itself and, and some of them kind of work out of different locations and then they kind of come back to, to the location. So you're permanently based out of there. Yeah, I'm living in Lausanne, which is uh, um, the, the biggest city in the region. Uh, I mean, biggest for Switzerland is 200 people. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's Lausanne is like uh, 45 minutes from, from Geneva, and then uh, which is like half an hour from Montreux. Uh, I've been born in Vevey, which is very close to Montreux, 15 minutes from Montreux. So uh, this is my neighborhood, and this is where, where I'm born, and this is the country I love. And that's the thing that people kind of who don't who haven't grown up in Europe or or don't uh, are not are not kind of there. Um, it, you're born in France, but it's so close to to, to another country. Uh, you know, I, I'm born in Switzerland. I mean, in Vevey, uh, but which is very close to to France. Uh, I mean, the France is just in front of us because uh, if you know a little bit, uh, the Switzerland we have Geneva Lake, which is called the Lac Léman in French, uh, and this lake is split in between France and Switzerland. So we we have in front of us Evian, Tonon, and on the other side is Lausanne and Montreux. Yeah, awesome. So one of the things that we do do um, on the podcast is we we kind of go back a little bit. And, and I wondered if you could kind of just tell us where it all started from before you kind of got into to Montreux. But, you know, where did you grow up? What was the appeal to, to get into music? Was was it kind of around you at the time? And, and you know, where did that love come from? It started very early because I've been lucky enough to live in a family where uh, first the classical music was very important. My father was a piano player. My sister was a piano player, classical music. And we've been lucky enough that in Vevey, there was a, a very big international piano competition in classic music called Clara's Kill. And all the competitors of this competition were staying uh, at the habitants. And my father had the Steinway. Uh, so every year we had like the competitors coming at home to play all day long before the competition. So I remember when I was three or four years old, sleeping underneath the, the piano uh, when the competitors were rehearsing uh, before the competition. So that was my first immersion into the music. But very early, uh, when I was like 12 or 13 uh, years old, I started to be inspired by uh, all the sounds of uh, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Die Street, uh, all those bands at that period. And I decided to quit a little bit the classical because I was, I was playing a classical guitar, the conservatory. And those sounds was very appealing for me. So I started to play on electronic, electric guitar. And slowly, uh, I, I had a band because in my house, there was a, there was a piano, there was a drum, there was guitars, there was instruments everywhere. And my, my parents were kind enough that we can play with my brother and sister all day long in, in the house. Uh, but, uh, we decided to create bands, which was more like pop, uh, jazz progressive band inspired by Colosseum, uh, by Chick Corea, by, um, John McLaughlin, my Mahavishnu Orchestra, uh, Tempest, or all those kind of band that's from the early seventies. And we were inspired by that. 
And uh, that's why it was very not professional, to be honest. <laughs> but we, we had fun into music. But I was continuing also my studies at that time. And I entered the hotel business school in Lausanne, the famous international business hotel business school in Lausanne. And um, during uh, just before getting there, I had a chance to 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 meet Claude Knobs, the founder of the Montreal Jazz Festival, uh, because Claude was also uh, living in the region. He was born in Montreux, and he knew my father. And my father was uh, one of the guys that helped Claude when he started the festival in 1967. And Claude was kind enough to welcome me for one hour to listen to music. Claude, at that period, was of course the founder of the festival, but he was also the managing director for One in Music Europe. And as a very non-professional musician, it was interesting for me to be in contact with him. And he accepted and we spent one hour together uh, and then that was it. So um, I was already on heaven to have seen Mr. Claude Knobs at that period. But two years later, uh, I was working at the Montrepadas for some extras to make some money to go to the school. And uh, at four in the morning, someone hit on my shoulder uh, and said, what are you doing here? It was Claude. Uh, and I say, um, Claude, uh, how are you? And he said, what are you doing today? And say, um, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow it's Sunday. Uh, can you come up to my house, uh, my chalet up in the mountain? Because I have the Monty Python guys coming to have dinner and I need someone to help me cooking and serving. And I say, of course, I'm coming. And we were just like four people up in the chalet with the founder of the Monty Pythons. Uh, and we had fun. And then we we ended at four in the morning when at, at that period, Claude said, uh, you know, I'm doing all the reception of the artists uh, in my chalet during the festivals. You coming from the hotel business. Uh, why don't you come and help me serving the artist during during the festival. And of course, for me, it was one of the biggest dream I can expect <laughs> to be uh, like in the garden party with artists. So I started in 1994, working up in the chalet uh, during the famous uh, Claude's receptions. Uh, I say famous because all the artists around the world, they know what I'm talking about uh, because it was when Claude was alive, it was totally crazy because you were... During the festival, getting up in this chalet, which is really a museum of music and everything that Claude had in his career. And you were just sitting and having a raclette with, I remember the first time I was just serving Zucchero and then all the big guys, BB King, Quincy, Miles Davis, all the big guys was just coming up. It was for me a dream to be there. So when I ended my studies in 1999, Claude called me and say, you know what? I'm looking for a position in marketing and sponsoring. Uh, I'm looking for someone. Do you want to take it over? <laughs> and I say, uh, oh, eh, mm, ah, in, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and uh, so I accepted and I was just on heaven again uh, to be hired by the Montreal Jazz Festival. And I started as sponsoring and marketing manager in 1999. And uh, one year later, Claude came in, in the office and said, you know what, I'm 65 years old, I need to think about the future. And uh, I want to create the position of Secretary General. And I want you to take this position. I was 25 years old. And I say, wow, what does it mean exactly, Claude? And he looked at me and said, I really don't know, but I want to make it that with you. And that was it. <laughs> so, and I'm still there. It's crazy. And I think just going back to what you said as well, you know, your your family, you know, some kids go against the music that their family play or listen to, you know, and it doesn't sound like you had one of those phases. You didn't have a phase of kind of listening to rap or metal. Well, it was it was all it was all about the music that your family were listening to as well. So it kind of tied in really nicely. Yeah, I have I really have to thank my parents because even they were more deep into the classical music. They were really open-minded in every kind of music, and especially with their kids, because we were listening to all kinds of music and very loud. My, my father was really a sound freak, uh, so we had very good uh, hi-fi system with a British brand I love, which is Name Audio. And we have like all these amplificator, pre-amplificator, big speakers in, in the salon, and we were 
listening to the music very loud, even if it was hip hop and rock and pop, electronic music. And uh, that was for us as a kid, that was very interesting. And I had the chance also to always invite people at home. So uh, even when my parents was there, the house was very big and uh, I had a lot of party with my friend. Even my parents was doing a lot of party too. <laughs> uh, so it was like, a, you know what we call in French, uh, in French, l'auberge espagnole. There was always people coming in and out in this house uh, and music was ev all the time in the middle of everything. So your parents were were kind of showing you these classics. Were you, what were your kind of modern day influences like? Or or, or was it just the classics for you? Uh, yeah, I mean the the first influence was really was really the classic. But then I I turned very quickly uh, in into the the pop music. Honestly, the first sound I was. Uh, I was really impressed with Pink Floyd. And I remember taking my first electric guitar and trying to reproduce the sound of Pink Floyd. And uh, then there was Dire Streets. And then was, uh, I mean, also I was in the period of YouTube, of Radiohead, of all those, those bands. So it was clear for me that I loved classical music, but that was not the main thing for me. And uh, all those bands at that period and very, Shortly, thanks to my bass player and drum player, they, they were very deep into progressive jazz, uh, as I mentioned, more like John McLaughlin uh, with the Mahavishnu Orchestra or the Colosseum or those bands like that, which were not the most famous one, but very interesting musically. And and just for the little story, that, that's funny because the first time I've met Claude, uh, we were talking about music and... Uh, he was expecting with my age that as I, I should talk about the band of my age. And I mentioned to Claude, you know what? One of the amazing concerts that you had in Montreux was Colosseum with um, John Heisman on a drum uh, and Dick Exter Smith on, on, on the saxophone playing around the pool at the, at the casino was Colosseum <laughs> in 1969. And Claude looked at me and said, what? Do you know that <laughs> band? <laughs> and so he, he was quite impressed. And I say, yeah, it's 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 not that it's the, the, one of my favorite brands, but it's definitely an inspiration in music for me uh, and all those bands. And so I'm I'm very wide listening, so I can listen to hip hop, electronic, everything, even classical, everything. Um, but uh, there was a line for me, which is uh, the, the the base of the creation of the 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 pop music today, which is very interesting. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, being inspired of different influence of music. It's 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 funny that you mentioned that as well. One of the bands that you mentioned is is one that comes up so often of, of how many people who love music really passionately, but they always it doesn't matter what genre they always kind of pick uh, Radiohead as one of the the kind of key loves uh, and it's every type of genre that that people love what why do you think Radiohead's always one of those ones that comes up yeah I, I mean it's, for me Radiohead was is is the key band into the history of music if I if I thinking about Montreal thinking about my inspiration is really I mean Bowie and Radiohead uh, and then Prince uh, Radiohead is because they broke, they broke the barriers. And if you talk the history of their music with the first album, and then they came with Oki Computer, uh, which were a little bit more accessible, if I can say so, for, for a big range of people. And they, they really had this, uh, what I'm impressed with Tom York is that they never entered fully into the, the music business. What, what, what I want to say is that, is that they, they still doing exactly what they want at the period they want. And just to give you an example, in 222, uh, we welcome The Smile, so the new band of Tom York and, and, and Johnny. And they came to play the small hall in Montreux, not the big hall, uh, not big open airs. I mean, it's the two guys of Radioheads they're accepting to play like a 2000 capacity hall because they know the music they're playing with Smile would fit to such a location. And, and that shows that even if they are really big stars, 
uh, they are deep into the music. Uh, and that's what we love. And they, they never accepted to do something which were apart from the music. Uh, and that's for me the most important thing. We all know that the music business is now getting bigger and bigger and the money is something very important. Uh, and you have s- some of those artists, some of those bands that they are sticking to their DNA. They are deeply sticking to what they, they love. Uh, and I have to say it's not easy. It's not easy for a young band or it's not easy for even a successful band to stick to just what they love because they are, they are appealed by the full music business, which is uh, big money right now. Uh, but it's why I'm, I'm respecting so much Radiohead. I'm respecting so much. I was respecting so much David Bowie. So we're just like so free, uh, free in his mind and take Prince. Prince was the same. Prince was the last, maybe one of the last guy that were hundred percent free. And he could decide it at any single minute what he wanted to do. And that was for me the best thing for an artist to keep the freedom to play music whenever they want and whatever they want. And and as a CEO, you kind of you you can't necessarily get starstruck. But I mean, I'd imagine with some of those those bands, it really would be difficult to not get, look and go, fuck, there's that that person there. Or you know, Radiohead, that must have been quite a big thing for you. Yeah, that was that, that was a big thing, especially in 2003 when they did the show in 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 Montreux. Uh, you, if you remember the beginning of 2000, it was really the peak time of Radiohead, and uh, honestly, Montreux is a f- very famous and historical location, but the capacity is small because our biggest hall is 4,000. So when when you're talking that in front of very big openers like Primavera, Glastonbury, Coachella, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, 4,000 is nothing. So uh, having the opportunity to welcome those very, very big stars in such a small capacity, this is something unique. And uh, in 2002, we had Bowie coming. In 2003, Radiohead came. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then Prince, uh, 2007, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the, the story continued. But thanks to those bands who also understood what the spirit of Montreux was, which is not an open air with thousands of people, but it's another experience very deep into the music, very deep into the intimacy of the public. And that's something different. So uh, welcoming such a band and welcoming back Tom York alone in the same hall and then the smile uh, with the, with the uh, last year, this is something very important to me because it shows that those artists, they are looking for something for another experience. And they love the experience being in a very massive festival. And they also love the experience being back to the roots of music and being in a very small hall and playing with the friends. I remember the, we did the first concert of Muse. It was uh, in 2002 in the small hall. They were very young. It was just after the Abyss album. And then uh, Matthew Bellamy, uh, who was recorded in, Mont- in Montreux, there was a different studios and he was uh, recording around and he decided for the one of the last two in 2016 to come back to Montreux to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Montreux. And uh, they came one day earlier uh, and Matthew came to me and say, uh, I've been told I can do whatever I want in Montreux. Is that right? Do you think that the audience will accept that? And I say, Matthew, if there's one place on the planet, you can do whatever you want. Just have fun. And the day later, they, they came back on stage. There was only the three guys on stage without any big production, just like three guys back to the roots. And they played a lot of B-side songs uh, that they never played on stage. And that's something unique. And that's what we're looking for in Montreux to create the uniqueness because we have a different capacity and we can help and push the artists to go in uh, somewhere else. Uh, and that's what I love in Montreux. So, so what were your, what were your, because obviously you're, you're there now, you're embedded, it's, it's, it's your life, it's, you know, it has your DNA in it, you know, what were your favorites growing up before you worked on the festival? And then, and then what are your favorites now? You've kind of been there and seen it, you know, what, what are the ones that still give you goosebumps? <laughs> That's a very big question. Um, I think, uh, to be honest, as a, as a guitarist and singer, when I was playing in a band, I was lucky to be invited in a very old casino of Montreux when B.B. King was playing. 
I was like 12 or 13 years old, something like that. And I was so impressed by the charisma and the way of playing. That was maybe one of my first concerts I really seen. Uh, and it was already at the Montreux Jazz Festival that I was just like, oh, wow, that, that is so, that is so good. And, and then being at the festival, sometimes, you know, I, the blues bands, I'm coming because uh, of, of a young artist. I remember, honestly, when I've met for the first time Rag and Bone Man, it was in Holland. It was two in the morning on a Saturday night at Eurosonic. We were we were tired, a little bit drunk, <laughs> and I entered this hall and I heard his voice, his charisma, his flow uh, in singing. And I mean, two in the morning in 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 uh, Eurosonic, having uh, the the power of doing like a cappella song in the middle of the club where everybody was drunk. I thought that, wow, this guy, he got something. So I was just crying uh, in the audience and I went back and I was backstage to say hello to Rory. And um, then he came to the Montreal Jazz Festival uh, for celebrating the 50th anniversary for the press conference. That those kind of stories I love. Uh, and um, to be honest, when David Bowie placed in 2002, I was just like hypnotized by his charisma. Uh, same wise with with Prince, but there is so many, so many, so many, so many. I can I can say that uh, and even even the very small one or so young artist starting, and then you enter the hall and you're not expecting something like that, and you get like just a big throw on your face and you say, "Wow, sounds so good!" And that those moments that mainly that the, the moment that are not expected is the best moment for me when, when an artist the, is surprising me. Yeah, they're the, they're the moments, I guess, you know, why people go to festivals. You know, there's so many festivals that you can think of that they have the the, the smaller artists, but then the next year they're, they're you know, they could be headlining because it's just, you know, when you get, when it gets the ball rolling and, you know, a lot of people are kind of uh, looking at these different events and looking at these people and where they're going, that's, that's kind of the, the joy of it. I guess with you being... A musician yourself you know i know a few people in events that because they they love music but they can't play anything and are tone deaf when singing they kind of mm. music wasn't uh wasn't something that they could do full time but i guess for you it sounded like you had that talent do you think there was ever a point that you could make it could have made it as a as a musician as well like in terms of the big bigger scale <laughs> no <laughs> not, not at all. <laughs> Thank you for asking, but no. <laughs> no, it's 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 really uh it's really a passion, definitely. Uh but uh I, I'm not a a huge worker in music, uh so uh I, I really love but uh, it's funny because since I'm working for the festival, I don't have a band anymore because I'm just I'm traveling all the time and uh it's like uh what we call it fresh, les cordonniers, les, les plus mal chaussés. I mean, that people working in a business that they are not playing in the business. <laughs> uh, it means that um, I'm not a lonely musicer, uh, musicians. I love jamming. I love jamming with friends and I, I, I hate doing covers and just looking at partition. I really love to improvise and it's not something you can do. Uh, and honestly, I will never go to a jam session at the Motor Jazz Festival <laughs> because I don't have the level to do so. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's a big inspiration for me. So uh, I'm, I'm happy I had the chance to play once and also to have maybe another way to listen to the music sometimes. Um, and you told us like, you know, your, your love for, for, for jazz in particular. And I, I uh, it's kind of there's multiple questions here really that um I can think of in terms of you know what the effect jazz has had you know in the current current climate I guess but you know there are some genres of music that you can really see how they affect other types of music I'm thinking you know you're kind of classical or you 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 know your Motown to to the rap how do you think jazz has affected music today or or kind of in the past you know how how do you think that that the music that you hear today has been affected by jazz? Every kind of music has been affected to, for, by jazz. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I mean, if you take the basics of what, what we love in Montreal, which is more the Afro-American 
jazz music. We started, the festival started on the basis of Rita Franklin, Nina Simone, Marvin Gaye, James Brown, uh, all those big guys from the Motown, but also from Atlantic music. Uh, because we've been lucky enough that Claude Naps was also a very good friend of Neshwin and Ahmed Ertegun from Atlantic Music. It's why Claude also have been working for Warner Music. So our DNA of what we call jazz is really, I mean, also the soul and the blues. So if you take this line, uh, talking from, from the jazz played by the slaves, uh, and, and then moving to uh, the soul music, to the blues music, to the rock, to the pop, and now to the hip hop, Everything is, in a way, a little bit connected. I really don't like when we're trying to make some barriers in between the genre of music, uh, because we see that the musician themselves, they're trying to break those barriers. Uh, and they want to collaborate together, uh, just to name Robert Glasper and Terence Martin. Uh, if you see now what is happening, the music is totally open. And the, the artist is really trying to, to break the barriers and to collaborate together. And this is a huge value for, for the music in the future. So I'm very happy. And, and honestly, like 10 or 15 years later or 20 years later, you were rather a jazz fan or a rock fan or a pop fan. And you could not mix that together. Uh, now it's really cool because with the accessibility of music everywhere on every single platform, um, everything is mixing together. Uh, and when people is asking, but Montreal is a Montreal jazz festival, and you you only have like ten percent or fifteen percent of pure jazz, they say, yeah. But the question of jazz is not a style of music; it's really a spirit, spirit of improvisation, spirit of freedomness, uh, spirit of uh, yeah, uh, uh, sharing music with uh, everybody. And Claude was saying that very beautifully, beautifully in the past. He said for him. Music is like in jazz is like a big bouquet of flowers, flowers of many kinds of many colors and flyers he want to share with the audience. And I guess the, the, it's kind of multi, multi question, really. But the, there are some genres that have kind of pivoted to, to modern day music, you know, from jazz in its height. I guess it's, you know, 20s to 60s, 70s jazz. You can kind of see every decade that there's that variation. And that evolution from 70s onwards, you know, how do you think, uh, you know, I'm thinking classical, you know, classical into film scores today, you know, there's there's that clear pathway into to, to what it looks like today. How do you think jazz has kind of adapted to match what what it is today? And, and are there any examples, now, uh, you know, of today's modern era where you can kind of think that there's a heavy influence of jazz here? Yep. Uh, I mean, big question, as you mentioned, because there is a lot of subject be, be, uh, behind that. But um, I mean, most important period for me first, uh, when you're mentioning 60s, 70s, when you think that that was really the period also when the Montreal Jazz Festival has been created in 1967, it was more like deep into classical jazz with Charles Lloyd coming on the first festival and, and playing with uh, Keith Jarrett. But very early on the 70s, Claude opened the festival to different genre of music, uh, with 10 years after, with Talk Talk, with, uh, all those bands. And we, we, you felt that this period, 1965 to 1975, it's an amazing period of music where all the barriers have been broken, going into the rock, into the pop, into the folk. Uh, and this period was really creative. And, uh, and very, very interesting, uh, in, in music. Uh, then if we're moving around the year, we can say that, I mean, at the, during the last 10 years, the popular, popularity of jazz, I mean, what we call classical jazz was getting a little bit down. We remember the years of Miles Davis. Miles was just like a pop star. People was going to Miles Davis concert like they're going to now a Dua Lipa or uh, the weekend concert because he, he was like a real pop star. And we, we felt that when all those very big jazz musicians passed away and we still have, uh, Lucky We Are, Herbie Hancock, John McLaughlin, et cetera. Uh, but we felt to be honest that in the jazz, were not as popular as it was in the past, especially on the young audience. But since the last two, three, four, five years, 
uh, we've seen that something is coming back and it's coming back on two different aspects. And thanks to the new generation of jazz artists in UK, mainly, uh, I'm talking about Shabaka, I'm talking about Nubia Garcia, uh, I mean, Alpha Mist, all those artists that they are bringing back the jazz in the center of music, bringing something which is on the coolness of the young audience, very qualitative music, and something which is is coming back to something a little bit poppy, trendy, uh, hype uh, for the young audience. And we feel that in Montreux, that now the young audience feel also that when they are jazz listeners, they are they are hype. They have their playlist on Spotify and they are mixing now the pop, the hip hop, the electro and the jazz. So I think that the future of jazz is bright, especially now, because also, and thanks to a lot of hip hop artists, thanks to a lot of electronic artists, that they are saying how inspired they are from some of the jazz artists. And that brought a mix. Uh, honestly, I mean, 10 years ago, I was a little bit afraid where the jazz will be in the future. And now I'm quite confident that the jazz is back. Awesome. And I think one of the big things, other things as well, is that how how important do you think location is as a, in terms of an appeal? If you if you heard of a large festival at Lake Como, for instance, it it would be instantly more appealing. How how important do you think the location of where you are and the the beauty that it offers? How how important do you think that is to to the festival? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm coming from the hotel business, so the first things you're learning in the hotel business is location, location, location. <laughs> but I will answer maybe in a way that could be surprising for, for the future of festivals around the world. I mean, in the past and mainly before the COVID situation, COVID crisis, we were more thinking in the music business that name first, location second, saying that the lineup was the priority and then location was, I mean, was important, but it's not as important as the lineup. I think that the future will be more experience first, location second, and name third. Don't understand me wrong. I'm not saying that the name are not important, not at all. I'm just saying that now the new generation of audience, they are deeply looking into an experience. What some festivals are really well doing, I'm just taking, I mean, Coachella or Primavera, or this is festival, you're really getting there because you have an amazing location and you know that the lineup will be amazing. So you see what I mean? It's just like, I mean, maybe 15 or 20 years later, it was more like you were looking to the lineup and you really don't care, didn't care where this festival was happening. And now in Montreux, this is something very important because also we have the history, we have the patrimony, we have the location. And is really bringing, I mean, the location is beautiful, but the experience of Montreux for the artist is something very special in the intimacy. And that experience for all the stakeholders that the artist, the public, the partners should be on the top ever. Location is beautiful. And then name and the lineup should be Koreans and was structure. I think that the program Koreans is something also very important now in the future. How you mix the artist, how you mix the co billing, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the COVID situation haven't moved the line. It was just like an accelerator or something that should move in the future, definitely. And um, we're happy in Montreux that's also... We're well positioned for that. Uh, and there's also a lot of festivals that are brilliantly positioned around the world. And that's interesting you say the experience part, because I guess people have got memories like goldfish these days. And uh, people are looking for that change kind of every year to keep their focus. You know, how hard is it to kind of maintain that that constantly? Oh, I, I guess it could be a driver as well. But how, how, how hard is it to kind of maintain that authenticity, but also that, that change in direction constantly? Uh, yeah, it's it's not easy to be honest uh, because the the music business is moving very fast, and we 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 all know, and definitely all the people listening to that postcard, they know what I'm talking about. And this business is also getting crazy in a way, but uh, 
the agility is so important. So uh, agility doesn't mean that you need to change everything every year. It means that you should adapt your model, but keeping your DNA and the spirit as strong as you can. So of course, in Montreux, sometimes it's not easy because we have small capacity. So how can we attract the very big names of today that is asking for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, even million? And how can you manage with that with the 4,000 capacity all? And, and that's a, a triangulation, which is very <laughs> interesting for us because if you put all the ingredients of Montreux uh, and you put in the history, you put in the patrimony, you put in the, the hospitality, uh, you put in the, uh, this tradition of recording and filming everything on the highest standard ever for the artist and not for the festival. Uh, if you put in the, um, the location, the Montreux Palace, the sea, the lake, the quality of sound, uh, the audience, if you put all that together, and I think that every single festival will tell you they have the assets like that, then you can make the magic happen and still having the big stars accept it to come in a very small hole just to have fun and to live something different. Honestly, I couldn't, I won't never be able to fight with a major openers that have like 50, 80, 90, 100,000 visitors a day. It's not possible. I mean, physically, I, I could not match the offer, but we can work on a different perspective. And it sounds like the unique selling point is that that kind of what you're offering and what, what makes Montreux so, so special is that, that intimacy and that ability to be able to offer intimate gigs in special locations with music that you wouldn't necessarily hear. You used uh, Radiohead as an example or used others as an example where they don't necessarily play the hits. They want to play what they're, they're playing. So it's kind of that trifecta that you've got. Exactly. Just give you an example. Uh, I mean, last summer when Stormzy has been confirmed, he was confirmed on the small hall. Can you imagine that? I mean, Stormzy playing on a 2000 capacity hall on the same bill than Celeste. So we were, I mean, very honored, so happy to have Stormzy coming. And he arrived on stage with a big bunch of musicians, singers, dancers, blah, blah, blah. And said, wow, what, what that set up? And he started to play, say, okay, we we in Montreux. So uh, I decided I want to do something very special and back to the gospel, uh, which is my deeply inspiration. And he did like a kind of gospel and soul concert, which is totally unique and totally amazing. And I was so happy with that because I felt, okay, that is Montreux. Of course, some of the audience or some of the media were just a little bit surprised. Is this all we were Stormzy expecting to do, like the deep hip hop? But he's not, he's doing something which is really deep into the gospel. And for me, it was like, wow, this is exactly what I'm expecting. When, when Tom York went on stage day after with, with Smile and they started to play a song, Tom York said that I just composed this song one year ago, inspired by Montreux. Wow. Thank you. That's great. It's like when Prince wrote Lavo song in Montreux, where Deep Purple wrote Smoke on the Water uh, in Montreux, uh, when Freddie Mercury and David Bowie wrote Under Pressure in Montreux. This is all those stories that makes Montreux a little bit different. So back to your question, what is the most important for me is that we know that Montreux will never be an open air with a shoot capacity, but we have other tools. So when you were saying, when I was saying name first or location second, or when you're talking about the location, I said the experience of Montreux is going to be the third things for the audience, but also for the artist. Do you think it's a kind of like peacefulness that it, you know, like you're saying, they're, they're writing these, these unbelievable songs, you know, do you think it's that, that peacefulness that, that it offers the, you know, kind of retreat? in its own way that um, it allows artists to kind of recalibrate and rethink in a different way? You, you know what? Honestly, I was asking me, myself this question very often as I'm, I've been born here. So sometimes you're not realizing what you have around you. And I was asking some of our friend artists, uh, but what, what, what makes Montreux different for you? And 
And one thing is the size also of the city, because Montreal is a very small city, it's 20,000 inhabitants. And when the festival is happening, you have 250,000 visitors. Uh, so we, we, we're making the, the size of the city 10 times bigger. But it means that when an artist is coming, he's sitting on a Montreal Palace close to the lake, and all their friends are there. So they can go on stage walking. They don't need to take a car. They don't need to take a cab. They, you, you know what I mean? So when, when those artists, they are doing like 60, 80 days on a row, being on a bus, uh, on a bus, sleeping on a bus, arriving in Montreux, having like one or two days off, because this is also tradition of Montreux is that the day offs are taken in Montreux. Staying in a Montreux palace is a kind of, uh, is kind of holidays. Some of the artists, they are coming in Montreal without playing and just staying for for holidays. I mean, there was a cave of, of Sam Smith, for example. He played Montreal, of course, but he came many years just to enjoy the music. Wood Kids and like, uh, I mean, John McLaughlin, all those artists, they are still just coming and just to enjoy. So uh, I think if I were them and just having the time to meet the other, and that's something that came out very often, because when they're touring and touring and touring and getting from festival to festivals, they don't have time to spend time with the other artists. And when they're coming to Montreux, they have a little bit more time. They can jam. They can just enjoy good dinner, hospitality, back to the hospitality. And they are back to what they love. So uh, this is my my joker in my hand <laughs> that I can play sometimes. <laughs> What did your friends and family think when you first got into uh, Montreux? Did they did, were they worried that they weren't going to see you again? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, they were they they were very happy and proud, and and we we didn't know what will happen. Honestly, when Claude hired me, uh, sponsoring and marketing, I was I was already so happy to be there that I didn't know what will happen next, and I took every single day as a gift. And we knew also at this period that the Montreal Jazz Festival was Claude's creation. He was the founder. It was his thing. And he could decide every single minute that who will stay or not, if I can say so. You know what I mean? So for me, every day was a gift. And when he told me that I want to think about the future with you, even I took this information like, okay, great. I'm very proud. I'm very honored, but we never know what will happen next. And when one month before he passed away by accident, I remember, and he told me, you know what? I'm sure you're going to do in the future what I can't do now. And you're going to transform the festival into the future. And there was just one month before he passed away. So when he passed away by a ski accident, I remembered that sentence. I remembered that sentence and the other sentence of my father when I started working, asked him for some advices. And so please treat everybody the same way and with the same consideration because you never know what will happen tomorrow. And I kept those two phrases in my mind like every day, very being very humble, uh, low profile, just that I have a beautiful patrimony in my hands, which is Claude's patrimony. This is not mine. This is, I'm in the, into the continuation, but my responsibility is also to turn the festival into the future. And this is a big gift. And talking future, you know, going back a, a little bit, you know, be remiss if we kind of didn't talk about some of the classics as well. You know, you've mentioned a few, but I just wanted to talk just before that, I guess, for some artists that you have seen, I mean, we've mentioned it a few times, do you know, they, they kind of have an obligation to play the classics, not necessarily their their classics, you know, but, you know, the David Bowie or the Queen type of classics. How do you think that fares in the jazz scene? Is there an obligation to play kind of, Take Five or Miles Davis or Duke Ellington, you know, or do they do they want to play their their own songs and they want to play different songs when they when they come to to Montreux? Uh, it's it's a balance of 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 that because they know also that I don't know if for example if you have a concert of Marcus Miller, you're really expecting that Marcus is playing to two because I mean song he wrote for Miles Davis 
And this is kind of classic that you want really want to listen to, to, to him. Even if it's a pop rock and jazz artist, there's kind of standards, uh, do you want to listen to? I love when jazz musicians are playing also the standard of the others and reworking on that. And that's also for me, one of the beauty of, of jazz is that there is no ego in that. It's, it's not a question that who is doing best. It's just a question of how we can move that song as far as we can, how we can explore that. And, and that's for me, the beauty of music when it's played like that, because there is no ego trip is not that this song is beautiful and I'm honored to play it. I just give you another example, which is not part of, uh, of jazz purely, but the last time Lauren Hill came to Montreux, we always know that sometimes the beginning of the concert of Lauren Hill is it'll, uh, you never know where she's going. Uh, you never know how long she will play. And after 45 minutes, she just stand up in front of the stage and she started to play Namakita Pa and some of Nina Simon's songs. And at that moment, the grace came out and you really felt that the inspiration of Florin Hill was definitely Nina Simone without need to say it. Uh, but it was so pure and so respectful with the music in Nina Simone. And then she turned back to her song and it was one, one of the most beautiful concerts of her. And you see that how sometimes just playing a song of another one could just also being a mark of respect or a, a way to to transform the music so i think that's all the time very interesting and it's it's you know mentioning nina simone there this is this is kind of the one that uh, that stands out the most i mean david bowie and um, or david bowie and uh, nina simone had a had a kind of funny relationship but david bowie <laughs> once said you know what's wrong with you is you were gifted you have to play your your genius overshadows the money and you don't know what to do to get your money. Whereas he says, I, I, I wasn't a genius, but I play, I planned and I wanted to be a rock and roll singer and just got the right formula. Whereas, you know, if I, you think of the, the Nina Simone performance in 1976, I guess, you know, how important was that? Not only for, for her, but, but for Montreux as well. Like it must've just been like an amazing experience to be a part of. Yeah, thank you to mention this concert in 1976 because it's definitely one of the most impressive concerts I've seen and also for the festival and for her. And you feel during the entire concert a kind of tension. Uh, I don't know how you felt when you listened to this concert, but uh, for me, it's like I have seen like 20, 30, 40 times, but every time I feel like a tension, which is deep uh, and I mean, he's an, this concert is an example of what a live concert should be. Uh, and just to remember that, I mean, also when you see the, the, the video, Gavin Tater was the director of that concert, I think, if I remember well. And there were like seven cameras and he used only one or two because the, I mean, the, the tension that was on the face of Nina Simone was so important that, uh, this is, a one of the most iconic concerts in 1976. And, but it was not the easiest one for Claude, uh, <laughs> just for sure. At the time she was on stage, never know how long she will stay on stage. And, and for me, honestly, those kind of concerts is the, is the best concert I want to see. I don't want to listen to an album on stage, uh, but that's my perspective. When you're talking to different big stars doing stadium, et cetera, so I was talking also with Ed Sheeran and say, but when I'm doing stadium, I need to do the hits because that's what the most audience is coming to play. Of course, yes. And again, it's why, why Montreux could be a different perspective for an artist because you maybe have the freedom in Montreux to do something totally different that the audience will accept that you're getting into different uh, directions. But when you're playing stadium or very big openers with 100,000 people, of course, you have to play the hits. So we were talking about the experience, but I think it's a totally different experience. I love the experience being in an open air, but I love the experience being in a very tiny hole like Montreux with an artist trying to do something different. 
we're coming to the end of the, the, the podcast and I just, you know, one of the last questions that I wanted to, to, to ask you, I mean, there are so many considerations like you were talking about, you know, in terms of, you know, Claude being worried about um, how long Nina's going to be on for, you know, the, the, the timing and operations. The last question I wanted to ask you, and I, and I know it's a bit of a, a, a funny one, but I guess is when you look at something like the the Island Festival, you know, Fire Festival that was on Netflix and how catastrophically bad it went, what do you think are those key components that people just don't understand when they're putting on a festival or think that it's just really easy and really simple? They can just start it, but they don't actually realize what, what actually is involved with it. What do you think the key ingredients are? You maybe feel uh, that uh, it's a, maybe a little naive answer. But I definitely trust, and it's why I'm always talking about the hospitality and the hotel business, that entertainment and hotel business is quite close because we're doing that job to make people happy. And the first priority of organizing a show and concert is to make the artist happy and to make the audience happy. When you started to organize a concert or festival for your own ego, or the main target is to make money, then it's a dangerous start. I'm not saying that it could not be the case that you can make money on music. Of course not, because it's a business at the end. But the starting point, based on passion, based on respect for the musician, based on respect for the audience, those both things is much, much more important than the ego of the promoters. and. That's for me the, the key point. We we know that we are in a business that has a lot of ego because you have artists, management, agent, promoters, blah, blah, blah. There is a lot of change in the Beatle where it's a it's a kind of poker game. <laughs> it's a very bizarre business if you think about it. It's it's like really a poker game. But the more authentic you are and the more I mean respectful you are for the artists and for the audience. That's definitely one of the most important lessons I get from Claude, that your passion should be devoted to the artist and to the audience only. And then your pleasure will come out from that. And that's where I am. Matthew Chiton, um, really, really appreciate you talking to us today. Um, how, what's, what's next for uh, Montreux? How can people get involved? Where should people buy tickets, etc.? Uh, so we have, of course, a beautiful website called MontreuxJazzFestival.com. And uh, all the information is on there, even if also for all the Montreux ecosystem, because around the festival, you have a, a festival in Japan, you have a festival in Brazil, you have a festival in China called the Montreux Jazz Festival. You have the Montreux Jazz Cafes. We have our media company, Montreux Media Ventures, which is providing a lot of content on Montreux on a different platform. And we have the Montreux Jazz Artist Foundation, which is a foundation dedicated for young musicians. So please... Please go on that website, be inspired of our ecosystem and the lineup of 2023 will be released on the 5th of April with amazing surprise. And I hope you will enjoy as much as I am. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Thinking of starting a great podcast just like this one? Podlike has helped hundreds of podcasters like you reach new audiences and grow their brand. Find out more at potlike.online.